on this episode of the Cutting Edge Podcast, how to find a purpose for emerging ed tech in college classrooms. As instructors, I think we need to find a handful of pieces of ed tech um, that we can use well. Because I think a poor practice is when we try to throw too much technology at students. And Coursera and the University of Michigan's approach to making extended reality accessible. Uh, we don't want to leave learners out of this experience because we didn't work to make sure that our extended reality experiences were as accessible as they could be. I'm your host, Emily Bamforth, and this is Cutting Edge, where we talk about the future of education IT and online learning with the people using the technology. The University of Phoenix is looking for a new president after George Burnett quit just four months into the job. First reported by USA Today, Burnett left the for-profit, largely online university on June 1st after the Department of Education asked him for information about his time overseeing Westwood College, a for-profit school in Colorado that collapsed in 2015. He resigned so he wouldn't distract from the university's mission during the inquiry, a university spokesperson told Scoop. The FBI issued an alert in May to higher education institutions warning them that lists of VPN credentials from numerous U.S. universities are circulating for sale on Russian forums. They often go for just a few hundred or a few thousand dollars. The Bureau advised colleges to keep software up to date and protect networks with multi-factor authentication. California State CISO and CIO traveled California in three days over Memorial Day weekend, hitting each of the system's 23 campuses. CIO Michael Berman and CISO Ed Hudson met up with administrators and staff on each campus and posted about it online. The trip, not an official work outing, raised thousands of dollars for Cal State campuses. Find all these stories and more on edscoop.com. Coursera and the University of Michigan are working on bringing extended reality to the online learning platform's users without a headset. The partnership will focus on developing experiences that students can enjoy on a cell phone or tablet. Coursera's Chief Content Officer Betty Vandenbosch and Michigan's Lauren Atkins-Booty explain plans to make training and education in VR more accessible. For the University of Michigan, one of the things we want to continue doing is to, one, make sure that our learners are always prepared for what comes next in their life. And we've been increasingly thinking about the future of work and the ways in which we need to better prepare learners to be successful in that future and finding ways to help them do that. We've also been trying to continuously push the envelope on what's possible in the online ad scale space, particularly given that we serve learners around the entire world who might be anywhere from high school students looking to prepare for college to students in college, folks in their first or second job, or folks who sort of moved past uh, their, or moved into the sort of final stage of their career and are thinking about what's next. And we wanted to find ways to support them uh, at those stages of their lives, but through really interesting, engaging online learning experiences. Uh, In the past couple of years, we've launched our own extended reality initiative on campus, trying to find ways to Um, better understand how different technologies or like augmented and virtual mixed realities can support engaging online learning experiences or engaging residential experiences and how we might bring that into the online learning space. We've heard from a lot of our students, from our industry partners and others that there's a need for more immersive learning experiences. And so we've seen this as a way to sort of meet those needs across the board. Um, Folks like Novartis and GM and Microsoft who say, I have this training need. 
I need to help upskill learners. We've been thinking about how can we actually connect all of these goals through these learning experiences in one place. And so this initiative is an attempt to do that. So from my perspective, this is a continuation. Um, the University of Michigan is one of Coursera's founding partners. Um, we've been working together for a decade. And the University of Michigan continues to innovate and lead the digital transformation of higher education. They have already reached nearly 8 million global learners through 190 open courses, three master track or certificate programs, and three degrees. And 10 years ago, if anybody had asked, what do you think about this MOOC thing? Do you think that the University of Michigan will teach eight million learners? People would have laughed. And so I'm really, really excited because XR is the next phase of online learning and it begins a new chapter for Coursera and the University of Michigan together. This is going to democratize access to knowledge, not just book learning, but skills learning. And I'm so excited that we get to be a part of this together. Oh, and I, I can tell that excitement is, is really fueling some of this exploration. And, and let's talk a little bit about some of the student needs here uh, that you're aiming to address. You mentioned, Lauren, students seeking out that more immersive learning experience. Could both of you kind of lend some perspective to what that kind of means? in this context, especially in, in some of the courses that Coursera and the University of Michigan are planning to launch that are focused a little bit more on, on thinking and, and dialogue, just a little bit more about that and some of what students are seeking out. So I think that we all recognize the value of being in the moment, right? Like the pandemic has taught us all that it's good to, to see and to feel and that knowledge and skills don't develop at the same pace when everything is remote. What XR does is it gives our learners the opportunity to perform real-time simulations of skills and to practice and develop soft skills and understand complex concepts in a brand new ways. And I think that the fact that these programs are gonna cover human skills, the issues with future, specialized industry content, all this that folks have said, gosh, you know, you, that's really interesting, but you can't do that online. We are now ready to begin to show that in fact, there are things like this that you can do online. But Lauren, you've got much more detail than I do. And I think Betty, one of your last statements really hits on it for me, right? That you can't do that offline. That has long been one of the constraints of the online asynchronous space is you don't necessarily have the opportunity for the same sort of authentic practice for interpersonal skills that you might get when you're physically in the classroom with other students and with a teacher where you can role play something and practice it and get immediate feedback in those situations. So how can we provide opportunities that allow for that. There's also the case that some of these skills, like understanding your implicit bias, for instance, or being able to really adequately give and receive feedback effectively, or thinking about ways in which you can have challenging conversations can be really challenging to set up even in an in-person environment, right? You, someone's feeling of safety and vulnerability could still be at risk with those kinds of conversations. And they're just not necessarily things that are always easy to structure 
even when you are synchronous and together in, the, in a space. And so the extended reality uh, technologies give us the ability to actually simulate practice environments where a learner can try and try again to have the right kinds of conversations to really be introspective and open about themselves and their skill level in these kinds of conversations without feeling on the spot, without feeling like they're being watched by lots of other classmates whose you know, opinions they value and respect, um, and without putting anyone else's feelings or sense of vulnerability and safety at risk. Yeah, and that's, that's really interesting. Can you talk me a little bit through how you design those experiences? Is it, is it something where you work through a script and there's a specific set of dialogue and, and, and what goes into designing that kind of experience? So part of that's still um, in progress. So we'll have more information for you on how we're doing all these as we get through these courses. Um, but as with all the content we design, it really starts with the learners themselves and identifying who those target audiences are that we think are gonna benefit most from this and really centering ourselves in what we anticipate their experiences will have been like coming into an individual course, um, how we how sort of versed in this content they might already be, what kinds of life experiences they will have had, what we anticipate they will be getting out of the experience and taking into account that again, we're talking about learners from all over the world. So there'll be lots of different cultural and geographical contexts that we'll also want to take into account as we're designing these experiences. And then it's, it's thinking about what kinds of skills and concepts when it comes to something like these soft skills can be best conveyed and taught through something like regular video, so to speak, versus these more immersive experiences. And then working with our reality experts, with our learning designers, uh, and with our faculty innovators to really walk through how can we translate this into the immersive online space and what works really well and what actually won't work really well. Where do we want to continue to find ways to refine on the kinds of pedagogy we're employing in this space? And then figuring out what's the right kind of extended reality to support that. Is that a 360 sort of immersive simulation of some sort where a learner is present and they're moving something around? Is that the kind of XR that's actually best leveraged through augmented reality? Because it allows us to put a learner into a situation in their own natural environment with some slight uh, technical mediation, for instance, and kind of walking through that process. So that's what we're in the process of doing with these faculty at the moment. This question is for both of you. When you're trying out something new and, and something exciting, you you obviously have to uh, look for that kind of feedback and, and look for the ways that, that people respond to it. What are some of the things that are going to be top of mind for, for kind of reading how students respond to this um, and, and assessing your efforts once, once they're out there? So Coursera has very high and some would say rigid quality standards. I'm sure Laura knows about, it's gotta be good enough before it can go on the platform. And we do a great deal of beta testing. We don't plan to do anything differently for this content, but we will ensure that this content goes through our regular testing processes. And those, that testing will help us determine whether or not this works for learners, how well they do on the assessments, what kinds of things they have challenges with, and we'll revise and, and rework together as required. Now, the wonderful thing about the University of Michigan is they have, again, 10 years of experience, so they know 
how to work with our platform already. And that's going to give them a huge step up as they insert extended reality into the courses that they're, uh, that they're creating. Absolutely. That sort of beta and QA process that Betty mentioned is, is integral to making sure that learners have a great experience as they're going through one of our courses. Um, and so we heavily leverage that as a way to check our um, confidence, honestly, that we've created a great experiment experience. It's really helpful to have the experts at Coursera confirming, yep, this looks great. And to have feedback from learners actively going through the experience to tell us what works well from their perspective versus what could be improved. That's particularly important when we're integrating a technology like XR. There are a lot of technical things that could go wrong. Even if the content is excellent and perfect, there's always something that could go wrong with the ways in which someone's leveraging a system that we maybe didn't account for. And so one of our goals is to make sure that in addition to having the best pedagogical approach to creating these different kinds of learning experiences, that we're making sure the technology works well and is also accessible. Uh, we don't want to leave learners out of this experience because we didn't work to make sure that our extended reality experiences were as accessible as they could be. And while there are still limits to what one can do when it comes to accessibility, particularly if you are, um, if you have difficulties in seeing or difficulties in hearing, there's only so much that can be done to some extent. But we want to continue pushing the different technologies we're using to make sure that any learner has. Uh, the same access to a great experience via that extended reality technology. So now I want to add something to that because in addition to accessibility for folks who have a harder time with an online platform, these courses are also going to be accessible to learners around the globe. Folks in the global south, folks in emerging economies are going to be able to access this content because it's going to be available on mobile. It's not going to require a VR headset. So learners worldwide are going to be able to benefit. And that's something about access that is just as important as anything else we're talking about today. We believe that everyone benefits from education and this kind of skills-based education is uh, going to provide wonderful experiences for people around the globe. No, absolutely. And in kind of tapping into that, uh, you mentioned the employer interest kind of back in our conversation and, and that employers are kind of looking for um, ways to, to train their workers and, and ways to receive workers that have some of these skills. Can you talk a little bit about how that feeds into selecting the courses that you're developing and, and you're planning to put extended reality into? And then also a little bit about maybe some examples of, of the types of skills that these employers are looking for and maybe something that can lend us a little bit of insight into uh, what companies are hoping their potential employees to be able to do. Absolutely. So we've been selecting this based on a lot of different factors, as I mentioned before, as part of developing our XR strategy in general, uh, our team did interviews with more than 50 different industry leaders. Um, we've been working and collaborating with companies like Novartis and GM and Microsoft and others across the XR space, whether they're producers of XR technology or they're adopting that technology for training. And between their very valuable feedback as well as feedback directly from our learners, market, market insights from Coursera, 
um, and internal market research that we've done, looking at future forecasting by folks like McKinsey or Deloitte um, on skills necessary for the future of work and society. We've sort of gone through and identified a set of core skill areas we think are just incredibly important for being an experienced professional in the workplace of the future. And so those were the inputs we really leveraged to help us better understand what kinds of skill areas should be addressed across this broad portfolio of 10 courses we're developing um, and which of those are really suitable for, again, an XR experience, something that really prioritizes active skill development or knowledge that can be effectively developed through an immersive experience rather than, say, a passive video experience. And that might be impractical or challenging to do uh, or recreate without a great deal of expense or even potentially danger in some cases. And so we've been pulling together these different sort of inputs to figure out what are those key skill areas that, that employers are really hoping to see in their future workforce development. And so some of those content areas include cognitive skills that are around, say, uh, leadership, self-management, collaboration, data literacy and ethics, but also, and also effective communication. Some are more tied to emerging technologies. Uh, some are tied to issues of sustainability, precision health, organizational learning and development and design are some of the broad categories in which we've developed. And so we've pulled content that speaks across those areas. Again, that was Coursera's Betty Vandenbosch and Lauren atkins Booty. You can read more about the initiative at edscoop.com. I'm your host, Emily Bamforth, and this is the Cutting Edge Podcast. To be sure you don't miss an episode, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Instructors want more time to review the edtech they use in their classrooms, according to a recent survey from the College Innovation Network. But with all the demands on faculty, how is it possible to take the time out to actively design these new teaching approaches. Todd Scherner, the director of the master's program in educational innovation, technology, and entrepreneurship at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, shared his thoughts. The digital learning initiative is pretty broad, so mm -hmm. I'm gonna really focus on something that I'm really interested in. I know my colleagues are working on it, and I've been thinking about it a lot too, which is the modalities that learning's taking. I think right now we have an interesting time to where we're seeing a lot of investment in the high flex or hybrid modality where you have some students in the room and then some students joining virtually. And I think this is like a really interesting way to teach because it actually creates a lot more accessibility to the class and it provides a lot more freedom for the way you can instruct, but it is more rigorous to teach that way because you have to think about engagement, right? So I have my people face to face, right? Sometimes I refer to them as roomies and zoomies, um, but you have your roomies kind of face to face. And that's, you know, that's a little more natural because I think we're taught to teach like in a face to face, especially coming from teacher education. We talk a lot more about face to face than online teaching. And then at the same time, it's not that you have online learners, but you have hybrid online learners that are interacting synchronously with your face-to-face -face learners. And one of the things that I've been working on and I know my colleagues are, we talk about it is engaging both the roomies and zoomies and creating community between them and the instructor and trust. And it, it's interesting. I remember one of my colleagues we were discussing um, 
group work, right? And so if you think of a kind of a classic classroom, you can put your students in groups or pairs or triads, whatever you want. And you can kind of pop around the room and catch a little bit of the conversation and they see you coming and you see them coming. But when you're doing a breakout room, right? You just kind of like pop in there and you're like, poof, I'm here. And, um, you know, it has a different feel and it's, you know, I, I, I like to think that I have good relationships with my students. So it's not like, ooh, the professor's there, but you definitely have that kind of feeling sometimes, you know, on both sides, the professor, teacher, educator, and the students. So I think you have that. What's interesting about the hybrid rooms though, that are set up to teach this way, is you actually have like these monitors on the different corners of the room and you have tables around the monitors. And so you can actually see the Zoomies interacting with the roomies and having good conversations. And I think that's, that's kind of some of the conversations that we're having are that I think about a lot when it, and I've seen it done really well. And I've seen people who are still developing their skills um, because there's a lot of facets that go into it just setting up that conversation. Yeah, just to dig into that a little bit more, can you talk a little bit about that engagement piece? And what's funny is I've seen uh, hybrid classrooms referred to as an emerging technology at this point. It's it's something that's still being explored and, and especially with this communication between in-person and remote students. Can you talk about um, what's been effective in classroom management there to really get the conversation started regardless of whether you're there in person or or sitting in the classroom um so yeah i would probably agree that there's still an emerging technology and you know you always have time intervals right so you have your early adopters and you have your different groups and then you have your late adopters so an emerging technology to one isn't necessarily an emerging technology to another so there's context and then also um, use the term classroom management that is something to consider. I kind of consider it a little bit more of facilitation. I think my job as the instructor, yes, there are clearly moments where you need to deliver information and that's great. And a solid lecture is a solid lecture. You're also talking to a former English education major who's taken a lot of literature courses. And like, I've had some professors who can straight lecture and they're great. But when I think about facilitation, what I want to do is I want to prompt conversation between it. And there are tools that you can use like Zoom. I know um, polls work very nicely. You can link out to Jamboards, Padlets, dot storming boards. Like you can have all these collaborations. And so what I mean by that is I think a really important strategy is audio communication, talking to one another. It's just one modality, right? Like if you think of a think-pair-share, and which is a pretty foundational strategy, right? I prompt the students to individually think about something, then I put them in pairs and they discuss their ideas and then we share it up to the classroom. Now, the way that I like to do that and I find it to be most effective is when we have a collaborative space for students to work on that I can prompt them for their think, right? So I give them, we're talking about whatever topic and I give them a prompt. I want you to respond to X, Y, and Z. But I want you to take a moment and I want you to put your thoughts in a collaborative space where people can have access to it. So again, just think of maybe a Google Doc where everyone adds, a, adds some words to it. Or one of the things that I like to do is I like to actually create Google Slides and let everyone take a slide and put information on the slide and then they can review their information. But I like to prompt them and I like to get something out 
of my students so they can put their ideas in a visible space and that the other students can see it. And then what I like to do is when I bring them to that hybrid space, right? So I have the thing on the wall and then I have the students at the table and I have my roomies and zoomies. They can actually all be looking at that hybrid space, or excuse me, they can be looking at that collaborative board, look at the information they shared out and use that to kind of spur on conversation. And then at the end, you know, you can kind of stand and really call on people. Something too that I've noticed when working in hybrid situations is that um, asking the zoomies to respond and kind of giving it out there and increasing your wait time. So like, it takes a moment to click off your, get your thoughts, click off your mute button, say, all right, I am gonna click off my mute button and do this. Like you have to give a little bit more wait time and you have to be a little more comfortable with wait time. I have a colleague who counts to 10 and I really like that strategy in my head. I'll be counting to 10 and nine times out of 10, like you'll get a response when it's called on. So I find that I do, acknowledge that it does put a little pressure on the Zoomies, but I do want them to be part of that class community. And I think that's just a class norm that you have to develop as the instructor in the room. So when it comes to developing some of these strategies, counting to 10, for example, or or anything in incorporating hybrid learning or, or another technology, another piece of ed tech, can you talk a little bit about the balance and the time that it takes to find these strategies? What are what are some of the ways that instructors seek out more information or or spend the time in the prep stage or if they have the time in the prep stage to uh, to really incorporate these in and feel comfortable with using them? Yeah, I think that's different. Again, I think um, everyone comes to the technology space in different ways. Um, I'm no exception. So I started my career as a high school English teacher. And I remember they brought a smart board into my classroom. And they're like, hey, Todd, we want you to teach using the smart board or you have the smart board to teach. And like, I'm fiddling with it. And like, I can't get the thing to calibrate to save my life, right? Like it is off three inches. And I'm like, my students are joking. I'm like, I gotta be teaching whatever, some literature or grammar. I'm like, and I'm like messing around with like triangles and colored markers that don't write. And it was very frustrating to me. And I like the next day I asked my kind janitor, uh, I was like, can you just take this out? And, you know, I'll just point my projector at my whiteboard and we'll just use markers and kick it that way. And he was like, yeah, no problem. And so it took me a long time to come back around to technology. Um, I was very anti-technology. Well, not anti-technology, that's overstating. I was work my way around technology, right? I would use it when I needed to or required to, but I wasn't going out to find my own stuff. And I was that way all the way through my high school teaching days and um, my master's in uh, PhD school. So like it wasn't until I started really um, AppEd Review, which is, I guess we'll talk about a bit later, but it's a startup that I founded a while ago and I'm not terribly active on it anymore, but I started to think about technology in different ways. It wasn't like one-offs. I started to think about like what technologies can do. And when you start to think about what technologies can do, and this was kind of like the same time that phrase, there's an app for that was popular. But like when I was thinking about what technologies can do and I'm hearing there's an app for that, like it starts to click and you're like, oh, I bet there is an app for that, that technologies can do. It's not like the name of a particular technology. And so one of my early research papers was essentially we were like, 
Well, if we were going to try to classify apps in like some sort of framework based on their functionalities, not grade level, not subject area, but again, what they do, what do they do? And so we analyzed a whole bunch of apps. And this was like in 2014, 2015. And we realized that apps at that time, they essentially do one of three things, right? They give you access to content, right? So think about you go to a museum and you can look at something and you can check it out, but you can't really change it, right? Um, or a newspaper, you can read it, or a search engine's results, right? Or an encyclopedia. Those are content-based apps. You have access to information. That's it. And then you have skill-based apps, right? So four times four, 16 math apps are great for these. They'll teach you a skill. They'll teach you to spell something. They'll do grammar, you know, reading comprehension. There's an answer to them, essentially. And then the other one, which we call function-based apps, but now referred to as creation-based, um, they allow you to make something, a piece of art, a drawing, um, a Word document, a presentation, something. But like when you start thinking like that, you're like, okay, well, I need an app that does this. And then whatever this is, you can just enter that into the app store or into Google and then put like Android or iOS app behind it or website or free online website. But as long as you can describe what you need it to do in like search engine friendly terms, you can find it. Earlier today, we were talking about, um, I kept saying collaborative boards, right? Type collaborative board into Google, you'll find one. So I think when it comes to selecting it, I've never been one to really rely on people's product recommendations. I've always kind of gone out and looked for the ones that I liked. And then if I can figure them out, and I've seen literally thousands of pieces of EdTech at this time. And if I could figure that thing out within like two to five minutes, I'm like, yeah, I can probably use it. If I can't, I'm like, mm, it's either too complicated or it's not intuitive or uh, there's something about it that like, you know, maybe I do need to invest some more time to check it out. But oftentimes I'm like, there might be an easier solution to it. So like, I think when it comes to selecting ed tech um, in universities and also schools, right? There's, there's the recommended pieces of ed tech. And those have been vetted by universities um, some of them I love and I use them. Um, and some of them I, <laughs> I don't. And I think, you know, as instructors, I think we need to find a handful of pieces of ed tech, um, that we can use well, because I think a poor practice is when we try to throw too much technology at students. I think it, to use, um, a creation-based app, again, a collaborative board well, or, you know, if there's a certain database or website that you like, I think using like two or three, four or five, whatever, but a limited number of technologies that are versatile um, and you can use them well, I think has a lot more benefits. And I think over time, technologies improve as do um, professors' uses of them. And so, you know, I, I would encourage people to think about it that way. And I also would encourage them to look at the recommendations and talk with some of the IT people, um, even though people are busy, like they do good work. And I like the ones in my school do a great job. So I think that's important to consider. Yeah. And I, I, I want to touch back on that in a moment, but one of the things I think is interesting there is, is picking those pieces of technology and, and not oversaturating the classroom. Um, I wanted to hear a little bit more perspective 
obviously students are a lot more familiar with technology now. They're surrounded by technology. What are some of the pieces of technology or, or ed tech that you've seen college students get really excited about? What's something that that really got people engaged? A couple of things on that one. So first, when there were like, I'm what's called a zenial. I was born in 1980, so right between millennials and Generation X. And um, so I had an analog childhood. And then, I mean, I sent my first text message when I was a senior in college. Um, I think I told my girlfriend at the time to meet me at the, the barbershop or whatever. So like, I still remember pounding out the numbers. And so when like, we think about people who grew up with technology, it's interesting what we mean by that, because like, there's different types of technology. There's technology for entertainment. There's technology for professional and academic things. So I think we need to kind of be mindful about like, even though they grew up with technology, like they might be using technology in a new way. So I think there's that. What are some good technologies or what technologies have you seen students use? Well, I'll share a story. Like I'm thinking about virtual reality, right? So I mm-hmm. was fortunate enough to get a grant recent or last year and I bought a class set of VR head handsets or headsets. Um, y'all can't see me on the podcast, but I keep going. You can't see me. Um, <laughs> but I bought it and the students were really excited about them, right? And they were, mm-hmm. they were cool. They were fresh out of the box. I mean, they still have that new VR headset smell. You know, I learned a lot by doing it. I learned that students get really excited about technologies, but the technologies have to be used in innovative ways mm-hmm. and they just can't be used to replicate something. I learned that we can't take for granted that students, and I made this mistake last year, I'll be the first one to admit it. I was like, here's a VR headset, here's your controller, let's turn it on, make sure you can connect it to Wi-Fi and off you go. Students still need to be oriented to the different pieces of technology and you can't make assumptions. And I clearly made an assumption with those VR headsets and I needed to onboard them. When I think about um, some of the platforms we use, I think some of my students were excited to try a new LMS. Our university just adopted a new LMS. So I think they were really pleased about that. It's not the most exciting thing, but I'm like going from what we had to where we're going. I think it is kind of new, right? It's, you got you to experience some new things. I'm pausing a little bit on your question because um, the courses that I teach are really in the field of educational innovation. So we look mm. at some really interesting technologies that perhaps don't have as much place in the university because we're really specialized in that field. Right. When I think about some technologies that my students have really liked and they use well, I think again, Miro boards, I think is a great one. They like it for organization. They like it for strategy. There are calculators. <laughs> Obviously Desmos is a tool that I know really resonates, but again, I mean, people pumped up to do it. I think, I don't think it's about as much of the, a certain technology, but I would say it's pedagogy connected to technology um, that can create some really interesting learning experiences. So I do think virtual reality and I do think augmented reality um, do spice up the classroom, but I think they have to be used well. In fact, there's some research out there now that says after you use VR this a certain amount of times, students' engagement plateaus and it might even start to wane. And so, again, it's not necessarily, I think you get a, um, my dad always used the phrase sizzle and steak, right? I think sometimes the new technology is a lot of sizzle, but your pedagogy and your content are the steak. And like, 
you need to integrate it um, for TPAC fans out there. That's what I'm thinking about. But like, you need to take your pedagogy and your content and your technology, and it all needs to mesh. And I think that if you're relying on the tool, I don't think that's best practice because I think you, I think anyone in this field is going to tell you that they have to integrate, they have to blend together, whatever term they want to use. Um, I, I, I published something a little while ago, and I think the title is something like Pedagogy Over Tool. And I really believe in that. I think good teaching can be done without technology. In fact, I know it has been, right? And bad teaching can be done with technology. So that's where I'm just like, honor your pedagogy, honor your content, and integrate that technology into a meaningful way. And I think that's what's, I think that's what's really interesting right now. Again, that was Todd Turner with the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. The Cutting Edge Podcast is available at cuttingedgepodcast.com, as well as everywhere you get your podcasts. This show is a product of Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. Until next time, I'm Emily Bamforth. 